Welcome everyone to the next episode of Comedy Guy. Comedy, we're doing all kinds of stuff here. It's not just the showbiz. We've got stuff that Lewis is interested in. And today it's a different sort of topic again. So today I'm talking with a gentleman. His name is Jesse Wojtkowiak. And Jesse is uh, head of uh, cybersecurity. What are we going to say? Head of information security. Sorry, sorry, sorry. For Pipedrive. Um, but also he is a formal naval U.S. Navy aviator uh, with about 22 years of experience. And I met Jesse uh, a couple of weeks ago at a cybersecurity conference where he's talking. And what piqued my interest was that day, uh, that day I was watching people talk about cybersecurity and everything. And everyone, first of all, most people have got a technology. Oh, we've got this app and we've got a firewall and we've got alerts and things. And that's how we're doing the cyber. And okay, well, fair enough. That's very good. And then some other people were talking about, well, we're going to give training to the people and the training's good, isn't it? And there's evaluations. I'm like, okay, well, that is also very good. And then I think I already knew that Jesse was uh, former, you know, from the, the US Navy. And so I kind of thought, okay, what's, what's going on with this guy? How did this guy from the Navy end up running the cybersecurity? What's the, what's the connection? And when he started to speak, I... I mean, he was talking about all those things, of course, but then there was some other thread running through it. It was a thread of the people. It was a thread of not just giving someone a training a couple of times a year. It seemed to go further into the organization. And then there was just one little bullet point on the slides, which just said bullet point leadership. And I went, boom, that's it. That's, and then kind of the bits fell into my mind that, I think Jesse is using a lot of the principles of leadership that I was then surmising that he must have brought from his military experience to be able to implement this excellent idea of cybersecurity through an organization. And I think good leadership principles are a way to do anything in any organization, not just cybersecurity. It's a way to get everybody on board to communicate to everyone and make sure everyone's good and actually doing it. And I kind of, and when I listened to the talk, I went, yeah, I get it. I get it. I see where you're coming from with this. So here in the studio today, Jesse, thank you, sir, for coming in to talk to me. My pleasure. So I surmised after this that I had a small suspicion that uh, kind of wrote you a letter and said, uh, hey, do you possibly at all think maybe you might like to possibly, I don't know, talk about leadership and well, in much more polite terms, but hell yes, seemed to be the answer coming from you. Yep. Now you, uh, so you're married to an Estonian lady. You've been here for a few years now already. It's a common story, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's of all the things, two foreigners in this room, that's actually not what I was going to focus on in this talk. I realized I've done all this thinking about this, how we're going to have this conversation. I'm like, none of it is to do with far, two foreigners living in this fine country. Well, a, uh, my wife asked me to come here some years ago, and a, uh, she said, just give it two months. And a, uh, we did. <laughs> And the, uh, I find that the uh, it's a good fit, so I, uh, I've had no problem staying. Okay. Uh, not to say I don't miss home with a, a uh, yeah, my friends and family and that type of thing, but a, 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 it's a friendly place. The people a, uh, maybe suit my character, and uh, I don't see any reason to leave, especially when the it's so easy to live here because of the technology and the government and this type of thing. So I would agree with that. I like, uh, I'm with that one too. And, and for me, I've been here for 10, well, a bit over 10 years now. So this is life now. This is, yeah. you know, Estonians, why don't you live back in Australia with the sunshine? I don't know, the same reason as you, I'm stuck. 
yeah. all my life and everything's here now. What am I can't? <laughs> this is it. So, uh, yeah. So I guess, you know, very briefly, just to, to give you context to what you're doing here, you're, you're head of, again, I always want to get these right, head of information security yeah. at Pipedrive. So what does that job involve in, in your words? So, um, well, information security is kind of a, uh, you hear cybersecurity and information security. Cybersecurity is kind of a subset of information security. Information is a little bit bigger. Mm. It deals more with a cross-organization and information assets, whether they be on paper, in a, uh, a computer, wherever. And, of course, at Pipedrive, we focus more on the IT stuff, so things that are in databases and what have you. So, of course, there's the, the as you said before, there's a te- technical element. We have a... We have all those people. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, uh, and quite frankly, when I when I got there, I understood very quickly that I, uh, everyone's already doing this. They just need someone to put some organization around it. So mm. that that suited. Uh, so I, I started, and as time went on, I understood that uh, perhaps a, uh, I didn't need to worry so much about cybersecurity as a way of organizing and training people so that they could do it better. And so the program grew. And uh, this, like I said, my fourth year, coming on my fifth, a, um, I, I don't think, I'm definitely not uh, coming in there and bringing anything technical that someone there doesn't already, isn't familiar with or know. Mm. So I uh, like the right people were in the right jobs, doing the right things. A, uh, I'm just dealing with some administrative thing that helps us achieve uh, processes better, let's say. Makes so. sense. And that is, I mean, it's a humble and I think a nice way to look at it that um, yeah, to, to come into an organization, especially full of specialists yes. and say, I'm not smarter than yes, all of you. Absolutely. And you, I, yeah. one of the things I actually love about the job is these, uh, well, first of all, younger people they, uh, are like, they challenge me every day. So uh, I can go talk to them about uh, an issue or a problem and I'm learning as much as they are. And uh, I find one of the things I actually about the culture I really love is that when I, when I teach someone something ab- about an issue they didn't know about, a, uh, they immediately get it and they immediately want to fix it. And it, I mean, sometimes it takes two months, sometimes it takes mm-hmm. two weeks, whatever, it doesn't matter. But th- they're on it. And I, I know that it's going to get fixed. So it's not like I'm, I'm fighting to get these people to do their job. Like they want to do it. As soon as they have the information, they use that information in the way they're supposed to. So so there's a lot of there in, in terms of changing a culture or getting... It sounds bad to getting people to do what you want, which is not the way that that sounds, but it's like getting, if it's not bad. If you want people to do something, but it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing for the team, it's the right thing to them. It's not a bad thing to get them to do what you want. I guess you're building a relationship with them yeah, of course. and you're explaining why they have to be doing this. You're not just barking yeah. an order. And, at and them. sometimes it, once again, the conversation has to be repetitive. I, I, I'm... I'm very patient. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so uh, I have to have the conversation more than once, a, uh, or even explain it more than once, or even go learn it and then come back and explain it in a way that they understand it. So, for example, like uh, you said, you had a technical background. Sure, yeah, I have a, yeah. a master of computer science. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you understand, like, like a developer thinks differently than a, a network engineer, than an, a systems engineer. They all think differently. Sure. And then, uh, like product people so they're all in different times in space and you got to understand how they how they view time so hmm. i mean there's a whole science here but like in yeah. communication when uh like a developer for example like that guy is thinking about a uh, right now he, okay. like he's in the moment he, hmm. he wants to, to do things and like if it distracts him from right now or what he's working on it's not useful to him okay. 
systems guys, they, uh, they're actually kind of thinking long term. Like, uh, so their perspective is like, what happens when things go sideways? Mm-hmm. They want, they're always kind of preparing in the back of their head for that day. And, uh, but very seldom do you see anybody look in the past. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, so like, cause agile anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and probably security are the people that are like looking the most long term and the farthest in the, in the back because we have trends that we want to defend ourselves against. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, so every time I go into the conversation, I even got to take into consideration, like, how they perceive time and, like, how this conversation has to go sure. so I can get my point across. That is very interesting. And I guess when you said to say that how you perceive the past, it's not often that that word, the past, is brought up. And maybe, yeah, in terms of a trend or something or no, but to, to say, like, how do you perceive history? Everyone's looking forward. Everyone's doing the work right now. I've got to do this. I've got a goal that I'm getting towards. We've got a strategic revenue target we're supposed to hit or something like that but to actively think about that okay i'm reflecting on what happened before so uh culturally also we have uh, 60 countries represented mm-hmm. so a, um even culturally how people perceive time is different and so like australia is much like america like we're always kind of looking forward mm-hmm. if you're from like, india india china even russia i think you're looking backwards a little bit you have this this history, this context, this empire that you were a part of and it's part of your identity. So you, you perceive the world through that kind of uh, lens. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, even these types of things I, I pay attention to. That is interesting. Like, you have quite a lot a, a mix of, of people at Pipe Drive, even in just in the, the Talon office. Yeah. Are you in that big one in that Woho building? Is that, yes, that one? You're in that one there? Okay, that's very nice. They've got that, got that big stage there, right? That area, that yes. entry level there. I've been in there a few times. Okay, that's very it's nice. pretty good, yeah. It's good, good, good. Um, yeah, I, 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 I wanted to talk to you today because uh, I in the la- I run Comedy Estonia. It's my job to corral and lead and 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 provide guidance to these comedians. And uh, I have a office staff as well, just like anyone might have employees and colleagues. And then I've got these artists that I need to work with. And artists are very interesting for me because. Uh, uh, they are not profit driven. They're not partic- They're not always acting like a paid employee might. Um, I've come to. Un- I, I, I did some reading many years ago about how to work with volunteers and what were the motivations that were behind volunteers and how were their motivations different from a paid employee. And eventually came to the conclusion you should treat everyone much the same. They were like, well, with a volunteer, you've got to find their their reason you've got to find their motivation for being there and what keeps them going and then i went wait why don't we just do that for paid employees as well um but anyway with artists artists are very interesting i find when you're leading and working with them because if you like and we are let's say artist management it is our job to work with them guide their careers and help them through and but we are both it's not a clear chain of command with an artist. It's not like, oh, they're the boss and I'm the subordinate or I'm the manager boss and they're that. It's actually this quite equal two-way street. And that's what I find very interesting about managing artists, that uh, they are still kind of the boss of their own career, extremely independent. You can't you can't tell them what to do. You know, you can't force them into doing something. And I don't know if you can force a paid employee. That's another debate there. That. Sure, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, uh, they look to us for guidance. It is our job to guide them. It is what we are there to guide their careers and give them the best advice. And so we found that. So I, I've looked 
uh, yeah, to the practice of, of leadership and formally studying that. And I found it's paid off very nicely uh, to, to apply that to both my employees and the artists that we work with. And I, I thought we could talk a little bit about your military career and your work as a, a, a U.S. Navy aviator and maybe some of the lessons. I mean, there's got to be good stories in there. First of all, yeah, there's got to be good stories and then maybe a few lessons mixed in the yep. middle of that. So now you're in for you're in the US Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, 22 years, as I understand. Yes. Okay, so that's quite a Now you were just saying you went in straight out of school. Yeah, I went out of in out of high school and uh, at the time I could have uh, maybe gone to college for wrestling. That, that <laughs> yeah, career, wrestling. That, that career doesn't last. Okay. So I uh, So yeah, the I uh, uh, Navy kind of suited me. I uh, joined up. I went in for actually an education program. Um, they're, they're right. You get to see the world. Why did the Navy suit you over the other branches? Uh, well, you know, actually, probably the, the Marine Corps would have suited me best. I, I, I like structure. Yeah, let's say that. <laughs> um, and I like to work out. So, uh, yeah, it, it would probably be a better choice. But the, the Navy gave me more education. Okay. So I, I chose the Navy. Um Get to travel a lot, not one place, so yeah. that was very appealing. And um, yeah, so I went in, uh, had a ridiculous uniform. <laughs> I had to endure that for 10 years before I became an officer, and then I uh, got a better uniform. <laughs> so, What's the difference in the uniform before you come to an officer? I mean, uh, you, you have to see it, it's terrible. Okay. But uh, <laughs> it's very traditional, let me put it that way. Right, it's okay. It's about 200 years out of date. <laughs> so you joined <laughs> the Navy, and as I understand, you went on to be an aviator. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I only know at one stage you were flying helicopters. So yeah, I, um, we go through flight school, start out with fixed wing, and then we go hmm. to specialize. And uh, so everyone flies a fixed wing aircraft first. And uh, so my after that, I chose to go to helicopters. And uh, you may not appreciate this, but for me, a, uh, when you're at 30,000 feet going very, very fast, I, uh, there's no relative motion, so mm. it's not so exciting. Uh, you just feel the change in speed. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. But uh, with a helicopter, when you're going down a riverbed and there's trees on either side and you're playing around, like, it's just more fun. So, okay. so uh, there was that, and also there was uh, more duty stations or places to go in a helicopter. So uh, Okay. So I had a wanderlust, and a, uh, that's how I filled it. So it's Navy. It was Navy first, and then because I was like, I mean, the question then becomes: You want to fly planes? Why not the Air Force? I mean, I know that each branch because, has their own. Yeah, no way. Different culture. Okay, you could already tell from there that I mean, already from the outside, yeah. you could tell the differences because everyone, you know, who knows people sitting here in Estonia, they're like, military isn't it all military? You yeah. could somehow tell already. No, yeah, I had some exposure ahead of time, and um, so the Air Force is a very um, rule-abiding service. Let's just put it that way. Okay. And yeah, that's actually the two, maybe the two, uh, the best way to describe it is like this: in the Air Force, if you're going to do something, you say, "Is it in the book?" Mm-hmm. And no, I can't do it. In the Navy, it's kind of like, "Is it in the? Does it say I can't do it?" <laughs> <laughs> then go ahead and do it. Okay. So there's kind of a different culture. I mean, within reason, but yeah, uh, that's just generally like there's less kind of constraints on your judgment. That, um, well, actually, I don't want to jump kind of too far ahead in the story, but there was something that uh, as I was looking through your history and I saw uh, at least my deep, deep research into the LinkedIn page. Yes, I'm very, I'm very good with this, right? Now, you worked for uh, an organization in the Navy called NATOPS. So NATOPS is actually... Uh, 
um, a standardization right. uh, part mm -hmm. of the Navy. And so uh, I didn't work for NATOPS. I was the NATOP designee in my squadron. Oh, okay. And so NATOPS is actually a part of a bigger organization we're not going to talk about. And they, uh, it, I mean, we'll get lost in acronyms. Mm. But a, um, so they have standards. And there's a designation inside of every uh, squadron that the people live up to standards. And this is done, I mean, for everything in part of the organization, it's very comprehensive. So, uh, and it's actually kind of an honor to become the NATOPS officer because everyone flies with you and you kind of know how everyone's doing and you make sure they live up to, or like you hold the bar. Mm -hmm. So if someone doesn't live up to the bar, then like you're the guy that says, sorry, you didn't cut it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard because they're all your friends, but at the same time, it makes, it, it makes the organization healthier. So there's a lot there to unpack because there's levels of leadership in there. There's levels of dealing with equals and saying and having to display leadership over those who are maybe on an equal level to you. But just before in that, because I mean, and there's also the level of putting in procedures into organizations and the procedures don't mean well, maybe don't necessarily have to mean that this is the rule book. You follow the rule book and that's <clears> it. They don't have to mean that. There, yeah, there are those. Mm. And um, generally, people know what those are. But uh, uh, th th I think that's one common misconception. Like even with the pipe drive, I deal with it now, is that procedures and policy are there as guidance mm -hmm. for the most part. And if you're in a situation where this does not make sense, a, um, it's probably best that you challenge it. Like, uh, you may, like if you have no one to ask and you are without leadership, follow the rules. It'll keep you safe but it may not be the best thing to do. Hmm. So uh, getting people to uh, kind of uh, have that perspective is many conversations. So it, it could be a culture change as well that people don't understand. There's a certain level of letting them know yeah. that you can do, like you won't get in trouble. It's okay. Like if you take a logical step and there was just this one line that I read about NATOPS because I mean, it, it, as I understand, it's it's about putting in procedures for the Na Navy air, airplanes at, about how to fly them, how to maintain them, Everything. how to do the whole thing. And just one quote, and this because it was started in the '60s, that it was uh, prior prior to uh, prior to the NATOPS program coming in and standardizing, it would be like they might have the same plane in multiple different units or whatever you know, and they would get serviced in different ways same plane why is it being serviced in different ways and even to prior to this uh prior to this concept being introduced qualified pilots transitioning to a new aircraft were essentially told how to start it and then go to fly yes and that's because you just think hey the military does everything no the military doesn't have everything by default this had to be brought in and standardized and yeah, after Vietnam, we had to make some adjustments. So, yeah. Yeah. A, uh, um, yeah, so if you don't have standard behavior, you don't know what to expect. A, uh, people don't know what to expect. Very, very often, they have people want, say they, or they think that they want freedom. Mm -hmm. They think that they, uh, you know, I don't, I don't need the rules. I don't need this. And that's, people are actually drawn to startups for this. Mm. A, uh, but as time goes on, the organization gets bigger. Just communication gets complicated. And so, like, a standard set of rules, once again, is leadership's guidance in lieu of leadership. And so like these things have been decided, do it this way if you can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're doing it a different way, you, you may not have thought everything through. So uh, perhaps 
just do it yeah. this way until you've thought about it for a sure. while. And yeah, look, maybe, and maybe your way's got, uh, maybe there's advantages to your way. Maybe yeah, there are absolutely. positives in it. Maybe we can roll that into the standard procedure. Well, this is, a, like, Natops is very heavy. Like, sure, uh, I bet, no probably, doubt. You probably <laughs> never saw anything like this yeah. in your life. But that being said, a, uh, it gets changed constantly. Mm. It gets updated constantly. It's a living document. So... Yeah, but there's a procedure that goes with the change. So if you say, okay, this isn't working, this is why, and you can define it, uh, you submit your change, and then, you know, if you're lucky, a year and a half it gets changed. But <laughs> still, it, 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 can, it can happen. So. There is some process there. Yeah. For us with uh, comedians, one place that I encountered this was when we, we run open mics, probably, I mean, shows, you know, 15 a month, right? So every couple of days we've got one happening. Yeah. And any particular show, it can be in some venue, uh, it could be someplace and there's probably 15 comedians to on any particular show in one of those things. So there's 15 people that need to be organized. There's a venue, there's lights, there's sound, there's chairs. Now, hopefully most of that's already done, but there can be occasion where none of the senior people are there for some reason. I don't know. We all, the bus was late for everybody or something, or we just forgot one day out of whatever one time. And there's been some moments where, uh, I noticed there was a whole bunch. I wasn't there. Nobody else senior happened to be there at that time, just coincidentally. And the junior comedians were all sitting around going, what do we What do? we do? It's half an hour to the show. We don't have a host. We haven't assigned a host to the show. We haven't done the sound. And and I, I first thought, well, just, just go fucking work it out. What's the problem? But of course, they're junior. They're, they're new. They don't know what. And, and it took that time for me to explain to them, okay, mostly things are set up. I'm going to now teach a bunch of you just a little bit. Here's a microphone. Here's how it works. Good. You got it. You know that. Oh, actually, you know what? Turns out you do know how to do lights. You just, and I said, my direction to you is if no one is telling you what to do, just go and make a show happen. Just somehow use your best intuition or what you know, talk. If you make something of a logical decision, no one will be angry at you. No one will be upset for what you did. Just there are people walking into that room you have to make a show for them. And that seems to have helped now. Yeah, I can imagine. The, actually, like uh, in that kind of situation, do you have a different procedure for every venue? Not too much, uh, no. Uh, it's the, the one basic procedure can fit every venue. Check the lights, check the sound, because we're not like check the particular sound desk in this. They're all kind of the same. The lights, is there some light on you? This is not the most technical of procedures. Can the people hear you? Do a quick sound check, fiddle with the knobs mostly. So uh, it's mostly a pretty similar process for all. So you set the expectations and everyone's living up to it now. You basically have a culture around it. So anytime someone new comes in, they just fit in the culture and the culture takes care of them rather than... Somewhat. To a certain degree, I've found. Uh, to a certain degree, but eventually the um, there is a certain turnover rate just because some comedian people come in, they try it for one show, three shows, a few months, and then decide they don't want to do it. So there is a turnover of people. And yes, the group will self-educate, but I do find at some stages it's good to have a refresher, good to remind them of this. Maybe they just need to hear it from the leader again, just need mm-hmm. to hear that these things are okay that I will you know, impart the the responsibility upon you and I guess that's it I'm imparting responsibility you can do that and I've often found that's the best way to get people to step up is stating it yeah stating it and giving them the responsibility like you can do it there so yeah that was the the, the natops thing and I, I, I 
exactly what you just said, actually. More of it that because um, what was the the I read I found it the the main document the main I don't know it said it was the main NATOPS document the main uh, wait wait general flight and operating instructions three hundred pages it was a real page turner oh yeah yeah uh, um, but I like I like this line from the first page it was the standardization program is not intended to stifle individual initiative but rather to aid commanding officers in increasing their unit's combat potential without reducing command prestige or responsibility take charge you can do it it's okay a little bit of decentralized command you'll work it out absolutely actually well that's the thing though if you have a plan uh, it's a plan to deviate from and like I've done so much planning in my life I can not even tell you but uh, the NATOS once again it's a plan and like you may do things differently have a standard operating procedure at whatever squadron whatever Mm. whatever even uh, if you you change ships you might have a different uh, Mm. procedure so uh, this is all things that you take into account and you learn it as you go but that's absolutely right It's, it's not an excuse for poor judgment you don't use the rules to say well the rules said that I mean, come on. If, if, you, if you're cal- that caliber of person, you probably will get uh, weeded out by your peers, actually. But uh, you're letting the team down by doing that, actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, once again, they're just we write it here so we have continuity of operations, but not necessarily to, as an excuse for like, poor judgment. Sure. So let's go. So you, um, so you, you, you start to, to fly. And you're, you're training on fixed wing and then helicopter starts to take your working with the rotors seems to take your your interest at this stage. And what, what was your first deployment to? Okay, my first deployment was when I was enlisted. Okay. I was on the USS Forrestal and it was right after the Gulf War and we went to the first Gulf War and then you, we, did you were you deployed when the Forrestal went to the Persian Gulf for that? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, not, no, no, the Forrestal didn't go to the Persian Gulf. They went okay. to the Med. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because oh yeah, the, you, you well, could reach it from me. Yeah, Mister Australian geography knows nothing over here. Right, right. Now I see what you mean. Yes, yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, um, basically that's yeah, that's one fleet, and then there's another fleet in Japan, and so they uh, they took the from the east, and we came from the west. So. Mm. Okay, so were you actually in Desert Storm? Were you or just after that? Uh, you first were, one, right? no. So okay, uh, yeah, we were we were uh, on the ship, but we didn't we didn't get close because the faster was very, as I understood, it was. Pretty old by the time you arrived. So yeah, if you um, if you know your history, uh, and during Vietnam there was a, uh, they had an accident, mm-hmm. and this was called the F- Forestall had a fire, and this is where this uh, a missile because he didn't have standard operating procedures, hmm. they went skipping across the deck and they uh, hit another plane, <laughs> and the aircraft was getting ready. The aircraft carrier was getting ready for uh, flight operations to launch, and so they all fueled so the worst situation and all had ammo everywhere uh, that was actually where um, uh, McCain if you remember correctly uh, John McCain McCain. so he was on that ship and he you can actually see the videos where he's jumping out of his aircraft on the four I believe and uh, and running to safety and they were just started pushing aircraft over so Forrestal was a part of this. this so there was a fire on, the planes were all f- juiced up, they were full of fuel, yeah. they're sitting on the deck, and you said a, a missile skipped across from one of the planes or an yeah, enemy? A misfire. A misfire, yeah. right. Okay, and so that started to ignite 
some of the planes or something on the yep, deck. There was an explosion, I believe. I believe. Mm. I haven't studied this recently. But anyway, um, so uh, explosions happen. The fire starts. Huh. A, um, and they just, once again, everyone starts fighting the fire. And so this is something you're, everyone's taught in the Navy. Everyone's a firefighter. Right? You learn that at the beginning. So I, um, they did their best. They saved the ship. But it was basically out of the uh, out of the engagement for the rest of the war. I believe they had to go back and uh, mm. even the, the flight deck they burnt down through like two or three floors. So mm. lots of damage. Okay. But uh, yeah, that was the far stall. Right, so that this was is my, the ship you were on. Yeah, that yeah. was the first ship. Many I was years on. Later, later, still, yes. yeah. And then uh, after that, I deployed them to uh, Saratoga, and then we did go to the. To, well, three cruises in the bed, basically. It was, it was lovely. And then um, and then after this... And they were both aircraft carriers. Yes. Right. So you're on carriers and you're flying helicopters. So I wasn't these. flying at this point. At okay. this point, I was still enlisted. I was working on aircraft. I right. Was a, I was an aviation fire control technician. So Okay. Everyone's including you as a firefighter. Okay. It's no, no. Fire control means fire like... Control. So, uh, oh, it, fire. Yeah. Fire, so if you yeah. want to fire from one aircraft to another, mm -hmm. you have a system, that fire control system. So I worked on those. <laughs> right. Sorry. You think I know everything here. I know nothing. <laughs> nothing. So, so many acronyms, yeah. Um, and explain to me, because uh, there's enlisted and then later you're an officer. Yeah. This bit's always confused me, the difference between like the, yeah, the listed, non-enlisted, and then there's like NCO and all. Yeah, so when you're, um, when you're enlisted, like basically this is, uh, and all this comes from basically British naval history, <laughs> just so you know. And um, uh, so you, when you come in, you're enlisted, they have the list ranks, the officer's ranks, and this comes from the tradition in the British military where the officers were kind of like the leadership or from the royalty, mm. and the enlisted were. And that's definitely changed. A, uh, enlisted is basically where you're a specialist, and officers are where you're kind of a, actually a generalist. A, uh, you, may, you may get a specialty, but you're still a generalist and trained to kind of take command or lead so uh, different roles and um, so I, I just wanted to get a high school I did I enlisted and I uh, got an education and going through it I uh, enjoyed myself and I applied for commissioning programs officer officer programs and I got selected for these and at the end of that they uh, offered me a commission so I went through that process and took some tests they said hey you're going to be a pilot I said oh great so <laughs> I so that, that came to you, they, they uh, I mean, the decision to be a pilot is obviously like what you took some, they kind of evaluate yeah. and we think you should be a pilot. Yeah. Okay. And what was your reaction to that? Well, it was better than <laughs> some of the other options. Okay. And uh, yeah, I, I, like really, it was a uh, great experience. I have no regrets. So. Huh. Okay. It wasn't what I expected, but more than happy to do that job. What did you expect? Well, most of the Navy is driving ships, so I uh, kind of expected to do that. Right, yeah. But uh, this, like I said, other options came available, and it was another mini adventure. And I was, like I said, I was happy to do it. The people were great. Really, I, I don't ever, not one day since I've been out, have I missed the Navy. Not one. Yeah. But uh, I do miss the people. Mm. I, uh, the people were great, and uh, and the yeah, it was fun while I was there. But I, I wouldn't pay to do it myself. <laughs> I was, I mean, not to skip ahead to the end of the story, but I, I was interested to know about you. You've lived a military life, a military career with structure, with procedures, 
and then you, you're ejected out and then none of those things, that structure isn't there anymore. Did you find that when you left, you were searching somehow for structure in your life or were you just so how like I'm laying on the beach in Hawaii happy or how, how? so um I wouldn't say that yeah I I um I knew that I was getting ready to transition it was a major life transition so when I came to Estonia I decided to uh, you know just take some time off I didn't want to jump into something else I didn't want to go get a job so uh, I took a year off and um, did a little soul searching and figured out who I was without the uniform. Hmm. And uh, that was very healthy. And then uh, at the end of that year, I was like ready to go again. Hmm. So I, uh, I was hungry and then I, I started charging again and uh, ended up in cybersecurity. So. Interesting. Okay. Because as, as I have come to, as I've read about that, it is a very difficult, it can be a very difficult transition yeah. from having the structured environment and having the procedures and knowing where you exist in that organization, then all of a sudden, anything you want, they're nothing. I uh, have I've found, mm. and I, I have quite many friends who have made the same transition, that uh, the people who identified themselves with their job, like that was who they were. And like many pilots, I'm an AWA beater. That's, that's who I am. Mm. And that's how they identify themselves. They have the hardest transition. And it's the people that kind of like, this is something I do. And I know that the ride's gonna end one day. Mm. It's a bit easier for them. So it, a, um, it's just, maybe it's identity. But sure. a, um, um, all right, I didn't want to skip head to the end of the story and, no. and injecting that, but that is interesting, transitioning between jobs and uh, uh, finding you know, your new place and your new mission and the next thing that's up. And okay, it wasn't, you were quite happy to take that year and indeed, yeah. like it wasn't, uh, I, I don't know, I would hazard a guess that maybe if you've got good people around you, if you, you, you've got a family, you've got a wife, this helps to keep you stable in that time Absolutely. and you don't sort of run too far off the rails and, and keep it calm. Yeah, good support is always important. Mm. So, you know, you have Skype these days or even better things. Really? Yeah. There's a Skype? I've never heard about that in Estonia before. Well, I have to tell you no. <laughs> a Skype story real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Forgive me. But, uh, yeah, no, please. Like when I started doing those uh, cruises, I was gone for six, seven, and eight months at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was hard. We were getting mail, snail mail. Oh. So uh, nothing did, like improved the quality of life in the military mm -hmm. than Skype. Like being able to talk to loved ones even more than once a week mm -hmm. and, and, and connect, like nothing was better. Like everyone, like they were, uh, you know, they were a great company. Uh, Estonia loves them for different reasons, but uh, they don't understand the impact that they had in the world. Really exceptional. What year Changed was this? It. Well, when I found it, I, yeah. uh, I think it was, I was late even. I was in 2006. Oh, okay. And, sure, and yeah. my wife was even like, you know, <laughs> that old talking. thing <laughs> we've gone three we've gone three more since then we've got yeah. three the, the next three products since then um i mean on uh, by 2006 did they have some i mean there was general use internet on ships that was being connected that you could use to make a video call kind of happened after i was okay. i was already gone from that uh, at that point i was uh i had a, I had a period where i didn't deploy and uh, that's when all the good things happened so. okay yeah so. <laughs> Um, all right, where to go with this is, um, so when, okay, let, let's, uh, before we 
just go straight to leadership, talk about this topic and that topic, more, I mean, about what you did in the military. So you're, you're flying fixed wing first. That's how they get you going. You decide helicopters are maybe more your style and your suitability. And is that primarily what you flew through your aviator career is... is no. No. Hey, uh, <laughs> so I have... I have Okay, so that's another thing. Is like, yeah, pilots love to collect flight hours. It's very important. They gotta get the flight hours so they can go to the airlines. And yeah, th- uh. this was never my kind of ambition. But a, um, so I have about half and half. A, half my flight hours are in helicopters. The other half are in fixed wing. And I flew other fixed wing aircraft that were mostly like transport. So okay. what sort of? I mean, yeah. So it was called a C twelve, which is like a King Air. Okay. And that's actually my favorite aircraft. And then a C twenty six was. A, Called it, I think it's official names like a Swearinger sewer pipe, but a um, I, I don't know what the the civilian designation is for it, but it was bigger, but not my favorite aircraft. Okay, so big big transport planes. No, 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 not big transport planes. No, no, no. Okay, not like a Hercules or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, okay, no. yeah. But a uh, twenty six people for the for the right. other one. So mostly the admiral and his staff and those type of things. Uh huh. Okay. Um, and were you? So by the time you were you were an officer and you were flying, so you weren't on uh, you weren't uh, deployed on a carrier anymore. You weren't flying off carriers by then. So no, when uh, I became an officer, uh, helicopters have this say a luxury of deploying off of smaller ships. Hmm. So then I got introduced to a navy I had never experienced, and that was the like uh, the cruisers, destroyers, and the uh, frigates. And uh, actually, this is. Flying on, off the back of these, this is very challenging. That was great. So, all right. So we've got a helipad on the back of some yeah. sort of smaller yeah. ship, and you've got to land on this. I don't know what. What? How big is a helipad? How many meters square? Depends on the ship. Okay. But uh, yeah, it's enough room to get the rotors on. So, I don't know. Depends on the helicopter too, I guess. Right. But, uh, okay, I, yeah, I, sure, I sure. can't give you actual numbers. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Uh, how was it? One thing about the military that, I mean, I've overall, I, I think the military has got a lot to teach us about leadership and I'm very fascinated by it. But like in Australia, I don't have to do anything. We don't have mandatory military service like they do in Estonia, which, and, and even that, I wonder how the fuck would I have dealt with that? I've, you know, very far away with that. I see all these young Estonian boys and they go to the forest, even for their, eh, they do their, their eight months or 10 months or whatever. And then they have to, I see them, they go, they have to live in the middle of the snow or something and camp in the icy lake or some shit like that and I'm like mate no 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 we don't do that shit in Australia I'm not oh, you can't you guys camp in the outback I've seen it like that you guys rough it too yeah, maybe the heat sure yeah, but then yeah, I, yeah maybe I mean, the if heat. you're in Darwin come on like it's it's hot you're suffering it's, yeah and that's not just the locals I know you're suffering uh yeah I mean it's hot and then I, I guess I see the Estonian boys in the snow and the yeah. ice and, and doing that and I think oh god I could never do that but that that lifestyle where you from straight up when you were 17 or 18 and you said, I'm just gonna, I'm going and I'm going to just do this lifestyle of this structure and I'm gonna do this job and we're gonna travel the world and that just appealed to you, that that lifestyle, that living on a ship or living on a base that okay. doesn't... Living on a ship doesn't appeal to anybody. <laughs> okay, we, yeah. we do it. Okay. I, um, it all, I, I, yeah. But... Um, yeah, it's just like something you endure, and uh, and you say that you can't imagine it. Sure, you can't imagine it, but a, uh, given a situation, you'll you'll adapt. 
and uh, mm. so you just get put in situations and you adapt to them and uh, they, it's not like you're going there cold most of the time they're putting you in a situation they're training you on how to deal with the situation you deal with it and then you move on and so like even when you like if you're doing arctic type of a, uh, operations versus hot weather operations I mean there's all there's training for every one of them so they train you, you do it, and then uh, you learn and you move on. So a, um, even camping out in that miserable a, uh, environment, mm. I, I have to say, they teach you how to do it, you do it, and you move on. Like uh, It's not like you look forward to it, you just know it needs to get done. Mm. And they, uh, I think in Estonia especially, they need to know how to do it. Yes, there might be a more pressing need in Estonia than say we're not too worried about someone making an invasion of Australia uh, I think the, the from what I have understood the uh, Australian army actually have a, a, a whatever the, 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 it, I mean, if someone decided for some reason that they wanted to come from the north they would just basically the Australian army would just drop back to about halfway yeah. through the country and go come if you want come <laughs> come please try it try to get through Clean that it up, yeah there's crocodiles yeah. swamps this desert if you don't run out of water or food or something like that yeah. if you get through the locals in darwin you know if you and and that's their their thing so yeah thankfully a few geographic uh, benefits that australia has in that regard yeah but no i think that you can adapt anything uh when it, when it comes to like what they put in front of you you know you can you can put a mental block up if you want but uh, at the end of the day like humans are pretty resilient Okay. And I mean, current situation included, people are adapting. That is true. So it wasn't, because to me, I, I guess when I think about the military, I think like, oh, I can't just do what I want tonight. No, that's true. I've got to do that. Sucks. that. Yeah, I can't just go hang out. Or, and maybe that's not something good for me, you know, to just think, hey, I'm going to do whatever I want whenever I want. That's also not necessarily good that I'm going to be on a base or a ship or I've got to do something and then I'm going to have duties at this hour and a few hours off in the evening and then we get up again and we jump around in the morning for PT and then yeah, it's off to the it. next duty. But there's still something for you that that still held a attraction for you to know that this was your job your life it was all rolled in together yeah once again I, going in they never told me about standing duty they didn't tell me I stand and watches I mean you didn't know about these things they were like surprise <laughs> a, um, so but you, like I said you deal with it and uh, those things weren't all bad you learned some pretty valuable lessons there and PT, I, it, it, uh, it is terrible it, it, I mean you're waking up at 5.30 in the morning to go PT that, that's like it's, it doesn't, no one's out there and no one loves it except the gu gunnery sergeant. <laughs> the only reason he loves it is because he has a sadistic like humor <laughs> and a, uh, he, he's barking at you in a way that like he's having fun. Mm. And if you ever, and actually like I've even seen people crying when these guys are yelling at him. But a, um, if you listen to what they're saying, it's usually hilarious. I mean, it's really funny. Mm. And so I, I came from a very, let's say, vocal family and so when I got there like these guys weren't yelling worse than dad so <laughs> I, um, I was listening to what they were saying rather than reacting to being yelled at and yeah uh, like it was like there was plenty of times when I was laughing and I shouldn't have been <laughs> so uh, yeah they, 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 they know it sucks they, 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 they're having their fun if you can if you can be a part of it you just endure it like mm. it's, yeah the, the more you suffer together the more the team grows together I mean you get to go through that there's nothing like suffering together than suffering together. Like, 
It just is. Mm. You don't have to like everybody. Like you just do it. And uh, yeah, maybe that's a lot to ask, but for me, it, it came natural. I, I kind of knew the purpose, so it was easier to swallow. Maybe. And when you described, uh, you know, the, the gunnery yelling at you and, and doing his whole kind of thing, when you kind of talk about it, though, you you talk about it like you have a kind of built-in level of detachment there that in that moment you could at least listen to his words. You weren't taking it personally. This guy's yelling at me. You could at least take that half a step away, which is maybe what was needed there. Yeah, like I said, uh, maybe it was... I, uh, like I said, my my, uh, my father was a joker, number one. And a, uh, number two, he wasn't... A, uh, he didn't let anything slide. So I, uh, I, I thought I was being clever. I, he, was, he was already there. <laughs> and a, uh, yeah, I was playing knockdown dragouts. Uh, like he was a boxer, I was a wrestler. So okay. it, it was a, uh, not malicious, but it was a physical relationship. And so when I got there, I already under, like, I was ready. Mm. And uh, like, any, anything the gunny was throwing at me, I was kind of like, I know I'm not going to get hit. I know. You know <laughs> I, it, this is, it was good. So, yeah, they, okay. uh, I, I mean, yeah, they, they pushed you. I mean, them yelling at you. Like, I think we even maybe even talked about this before. When you're learning something, uh, yeah, you, you, like, the, the way to learn it is to have, like, wrap an emotional response around it. Okay. So it doesn't have to be good, though. <laughs> okay. and everyone, everyone in this day and age has this feeling that, you know, I, I want to have a good experience. This, that. Yeah, yeah, that's nice if you can afford it. Yeah. But sometimes, like, you can't afford that. And so you get the, the, the cheaper version, which is a bad experience. So, <laughs> I mean, it certainly seems to be the way of the military, right? Okay, do this hard work, get up early, march so many miles, endure the slog because that's yeah. what makes you okay. As you said, it builds puts that team together. You've all done. Yeah. You've all done the boot camp. You've all done that. You've yeah, all got that in common. That's a very good point. Is a, a boot camp like so? You have these moments where you have to go through this, but that's not it all the time. And I, actually, like Bill Burr was here a couple uh, mm-hmm. years ago, maybe yeah, a couple yeah. years, one or two yeah. years ago now. And I went to see him, and like he nailed it. Like he was talking about the Navy versus the other thing, and like you know, it's you know launching the aircraft, and like how we're detached from the Army. And the Army's like they're in it, mm. and uh, like everything he said was pretty spot on. So I uh, I, I was in the in the crowd, <laughs> definitely uh, flushing, but at the same time enjoying it. <laughs> Those um with the boot camp thing, right now I I can kind of get to imagine that yeah the 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 idea. In general, the idea of a boot camp or something like that in the military is that you are you're all suffering, you're all I mean you're all getting better. Hopefully, you're all doing physical improvement, but you're all suffering through this education process together. That's not the only reason, but yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and then at the other end, you've got that. I mean, yes, you've learned all these things, and you've so at the other end of all of that, you've got all these people that you're with your group or your battalion or whatever is your and and you've had that common experience they've made made this common shared experience that you've got so you can build off that to work together yeah now i wonder tell me how do you see this applying to the corporate world because I do, I, I've seen a lot of summer days. I always get to host them or I'm hosting some event. And so I'm always, and there's, I've seen every level of team building, every level of we're having an overnight in the woods and we're going to camp and as the company. And I've seen we're in the nice hotel and I've seen all the different, and I've seen companies 
try to replicate that. And most of the time, I guess a little cynical comedian, I'm like, this is all bullshit. Like really, it's just a, yeah, we all get together and, and drink and have a bit of food and that's a team building exercise. And yeah. how, but there must be some level that, you know, and some companies do seem to do it. We don't need to go to boot camp to bond as a company possibly. I no, hope not. Yeah. I hope not, mate. I'm not joining that company. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you think, that can relate to shared. How can it work for a company to create a shared experience that's sufficiently difficult or you know involved enough to get that engagement with people? Tough question. <laughs> so um, let's say that a boot camps aren't a bad idea. You bring everyone together for some short period of time. A, uh, I think maybe two months is too much to ask for any kind. <laughs> you sure it might be a bit, yeah. Yeah. But um, at the same time, it, it allows people to get on the same page. The, that being said, you should all have certain common experiences. And then, uh, and also, you're basically trying to establish the foundation for your culture or your values. Mm. We talked about this in that uh, speech. Mm. Like, values are probably of culture. Values are probably the easiest thing to address. And actually, like even the military, like every branch has its own core values, and they're all different. So, uh, and how how you like explain those values and the expectations around those values? I think that's important. That you're you're laying the the foundation, if you will, that everything's going to be built upon. So, in that sense, I think that the the it has to be well planned mm-hmm. if you want to do a boot camp. Yeah, there should be like common experiences that everyone takes out of it, not just this group, but it should be related to the last groups. And a, um, if like if you're if you're uh, if you're just doing a different set of activities, then you're doing a team building event. Right. But if you, right. if you want to like yeah, lay a foundation that or the culture of the organization and the values and stuff like that, then there ha- it has to be like something identifiable that, that carries value from from year to year. So things that people are going to identify with. So I think, uh, yeah, it's a tough challenge how you do that. A, um, it, it definitely sounds like something that uh, the leadership of the organization have to be very actively involved in. They can't just call in the event planner, get some events set up, do a bunch of stuff from over a day or two. Yeah, it would be ni- always with leadership. It would be nice if they have a vision. <laughs> so if they have a vision, then call the event planner and say, like, this is what I want to accomplish. And I, I do think that... A, uh, a leader like is better off getting the event planner and a, uh, having them do it. They're the specialists, right? Sure, so. sure, sure, sure. Well, no, yeah, not not they should do it. Pardon me, pardon me. Not they should yeah. implement it themselves. But the leader then can't. I mean, you've got to be imparting that vision somehow. Now, whether that's a talk, whether that's being active with them during that boot camp, whether that's just doing it right along with them, and whatever the suffering or the suck is the whole time that. The leader uh, hopefully is, is not there that, with them. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, like for example, in pipe drive, we usually have uh, well, we we have a boot camp, and usually it's two or three days. Or did before COVID, so mm. things are changing. But uh, um, we definitely have a standard set of videos that you watch concerning the, uh, our founders, and uh, they try to arrange a, uh, an evening where you get to meet at least one or two of them. Hmm. And uh, so you meet them, you can talk to them, you ask some questions, and you know have that experience. So in, in that sense, I think those are kind of the, the core things that everyone gets to, in PipeDrive, gets to experience. And then there, there are a, uh, other activities. And a, um, 
usually like around team building or a uh, way to think critically or creatively. And the, uh, you know, if you if you're doing something about creativity, it probably shouldn't be the same every time. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, I think also. Uh, it might be about in a company how you present it and how you pitch it to the employees because employees might be expecting, oh, this is our summer days when we do a few activities, we run around the forest a little bit and then in the evening it's drinking and barbecue and band or is this something like I would never take a summer day seriously. Like I'm not, I'm not going there to think, I'm going there. But to sort of, I don't know, have that. Maybe you need that and you need some other event where, because no doubt people need yeah. relaxation time as well. Yeah. They need time off too. Can't I, all be. I, I, I definitely think that the uh, that time to kind of bond, however, in what form comes, sports or drinking, party, whatever. Yeah, like, that's important. Sure. And the, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't undervalue that by any means mm. and uh when it comes to uh going to summer days for like just like military type training i oh my god no <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that but if there's like maybe common themes about where you want to go in the future and you want everyone to hear that or experience it at the same time mm. it'd be a missed opportunity if you didn't do it so true summer days are an interesting idea for me in general because I don't remember any company I've ever worked for in Australia doing that. No, I think uh, uh, in the uh, Australia and America, we had already moved on to like lean companies. Mm. So these types of things were kind of, you're invading my privacy and they were moved out and it was done differently, if at all. So it was maybe more transactional. Whereas a, uh, I think in Estonia, it's maybe... It's a nice tradition, a, mm. uh, but definitely a tradition probably left over from Soviet times. And a, um, they're adapting it. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, you're right. It was a good description, transactional. I do. I go to my job and that's it. And yeah, there's some team building or something like The most I got, if Rob Castaner, if you're listening, the most I think I got out of him was a schnitzel and a beer at Christmas. <laughs> like that's, we <laughs> go down to the German place in the rocks in Sydney and here's your schnitzel and off you go. Uh, yeah. And the, like the think that I would give one night or two nights of my time that I would give up my free weekend or several days and actually go with all those people I go to work to, but I come home to get away from them. And now I've got to go spend two nights with them. It was a, a fresh idea at least. Well, not for me, because I've never had a, a proper job in Estonia. Yeah. So I'm not actually complaining against them because they gave me a lot of work over the years. So I've when I say I know about summer days, just because I've been the host, not that I've actually been on the other end of them. Yeah, they're, they're good. Like I, I, they can mm. they serve a purpose, but at the same time, I, uh, I, I have gone to them and been like, um, I'm not really interested in another party. I've been drinking for 22 years. I, I'm done with that. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so back to you, back to your your military career. I guess to get into it as well, uh, have you what? Where did you see? I mean, were you ever deployed into an active role? into a war zone or to a campaign? Yeah. Yeah? Which ones? Where are you in? Where are you in? Really want to talk about that? No? Okay. I don't know. Sorry. Part of me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, le the, the last Gulf War, we were there. And I'm trying to use it as a stepping off point, but okay. okay. So there was Gulf War Two. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, yeah okay. we were there for that one. Right. And, yeah, okay. What we did, I don't think is relevant or important. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
big oh. operation. A, uh, a, quite frankly, um, I was on a ship. We were doing stuff in the, the Gulf. Mm. It was uh, fine. I'll talk about it over a beer, but not in a format like this. That's okay. No, no, it's all good. Look, this is new to me as well. I'm Usually I'm here talking to comedians and people in the entertainment industry, right? So, well, Plenty of the stories will make you laugh, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to be in broadcast. No, I understand that as well. You've still got to be some thought about, yeah, exactly the details that you're giving out in each of those. Okay, let's let's take another left turn then here. Um, I think that when dealing with situations, detachment, to make a good decision in a moment and when something's coming along and uh, we need to make the correct leadership decision or the correct choice in a moment, I find more and more that I probably know what to do probably know if if I sit down, I can think of in this situation, how am I going to deal with these people? How am I going to deal with this situation? Unless it's a technical problem that I've got to sit down and work out. If it's something to do with people, I probably inside of me kind of know the answer if I take a moment. But it's that detachment in a moment, which is really difficult. We get emotional. Uh, we are frustrated for some reason, frustrated at an event, frustrated at a person. And I even think I had one last night. I'm standing at the door taking tickets and some people come in and they're like, can we just come and have a drink? I'm like, no, it's a, it's a, it's a place. We, we've got a ticket to get in. We just want to have a drink. I'm like, come on, man. And I, I, I know I'd been running around. And I hadn't sat down for a while and I could feel that frustration sort of growing. And I know that detachment is the key there to take a step out for a second, fresh the mind, uh, and then try to see the situation at, yeah, from some sort of third person, or just detach for a second. And that's why I was sort of already hinting that when we were talking about being in boot camp, that you sort of had this default detachment from that situation. Stress. Stress, yeah. And how, and I know, I can see that the detachment is the core of the, the way to start dealing with almost any situation is stop, detach, and now we try to think logically through something. Yep. Um, and I, I guess, where am I going with this? What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on how did you do it when you're in? I don't know what the details are, but you were in live fire missions. There's stuff happening. There's real danger around you. And you have to make those decisions and staying detached in that moment. Yeah. So uh, I think that the answer is planning and training. And so... Yeah, you know, when you get in a stressful situation, it's usually because you, uh, like, even if it's a good one, uh, it's because you're not familiar with what's going on. It may be small, subtle things, but like you understand that there's something going on, so your stress rises. There's good stress and bad stress, whatever. Mm. So, um, uh, and also you talked about the detachment. So, like, uh, your ability to detach, like, it doesn't mean that you don't have these same emotional experiences underneath. You just put yourself in a different place. And usually that has to do with, I've been here before. Mm-hmm. So if you practice something, and I, like I, I mentioned tabletops, disaster recovery, or things that we do at, at Pipe Drive, um, uh, those, are good, those are good situations to be put in a, just an odd situation. And you're not familiar with it. you got to think, and it is stressful and annoying. And, uh, but dealing with it forces something in you. And as you deal with it, and then you center yourself to deal with a ridiculous situation. One of my favorite uh, tabletops is a, uh, a zombie attacks. 
Okay. And the simple reason is like zombies don't exist, yeah. uh, but they're, they're, it's happening. Now you need to deal with it. What do we need to think about? Mm-hmm. And they, when people start actually thinking through it and how we're going to deal with it and how business is going to go through a, uh, or deal with the situation, uh, if you get them to just not throw up and like they can't deal with the situation because it doesn't exist. So they, they ha- like where you get yeah, people that play yeah. because they, they're familiar with the zombie genre or whatever. But as people start playing, more people get pulled into it and they understand the rules because it's being laid out as you go. Mm-hmm. A, uh, it's interesting. You get to see people in a different dynamic. But once they go through this stressful situation, then you can add another one, a realistic one. And they understand how to deal with the people. But the most important thing for the individual is them understanding their emotions and the stress that they're feeling and identifying it. So once they get that under control, then they can deal with the situation. So even in a, and now t- I guess the backup for people. So a tabletop is where you're sitting down, you're talking with someone trying to walk through a scenario, mm. role play out a scenario. Is that yeah, what you mean basically. by that? Okay. And even in that scenario that you're able to elicit that level of stress from them, what would you do? What would you do? Are you? Yeah, I don't, I don't sit there and do that. Usually, okay. uh, usually you have, uh, like if you plan it well, you have a, uh, like time. And so, a, uh, for example, like at this time, something happens. At this time, something happens. And you have, it, they're called injects. So as your injects come in, people deal with the new information. And it's how they deal with that information, and it will change the direction. Okay. And so a lot of times, just those changes of directions are knowing how they're, they're supposed to respond. Some people do it very naturally. They're good communicators. They deal with stress naturally. Mm-hmm. Like you might even be surprised who that is. Other people can't deal with the fact that they don't have all the information. They don't want to make a decision because they don't have all the information and they freeze. And so you got to get them in the situation where they're used or get them in to have the experience where they have to make these decisions. Mm-hmm. They have to, like, it can be the wrong decision. Go ahead and make it. Yeah. And, they, uh, and we'll talk about it later. Mm-hmm. And right and wrong, like when you're in, where you're in a, a uh, let's call it, When you're experiencing a disaster, <laughs> um, there's probably no right or wrong. Like you're dealing with it. Mm. It's just like your actions are either going to resolve it quicker or later. So you're just trying to minimize the damage that's done to your world or hmm. whatever. So uh, for a business, this has to do with dollar signs or time or people losing work time. A uh, military, a lot of times, life or death stuff. So you had a different risk assessment but a, um, yeah basically that's it you just want people to deal with a situation the more experience they have with dealing stressful situations outside of work not the ones they know every day mm-hmm. a, uh, you got to bring something that's an external a, um, experience push it in and now what do you do and that works and the, uh, the more you do it I, I, again at the beginning it's ridiculous it is ridiculous. You're LARPing. Like, uh, live action role playing. Like, no one wants to do this. Like, uh, the, the worst thing, I mean, the one next step is you could make them put on a, a costume and do it, but that would be <laughs> too much. But the, it, again, like, uh, you get to have this experience, good or bad, they're learning from it. Okay. They're learning how their, their other team members uh, work. They're learning how to communicate. They're learning what they don't know, how your process, procedures, all that stuff doesn't work. Hmm. And what to do differently next time. Hmm. So a, uh, you can't say it's a failure. You can just say make recommendations like this could be done better or this could be done better or we expect this or we didn't meet our goals, whatever. Like You can start defining these things. But if you never said what your goals are, you've never, never held the bar anywhere, you haven't talked to people about this or they don't know who to call, then you're really extending that time frame when disaster happens. Hmm. So 
Yeah, the zombie one is very interesting because it's not real at all and we have no frame of reference for what we would actually do in that movies, situation. Right? Yeah, that's it. Right, okay. And 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 what you said where where either are you, are you either but the important point for what I took away from that was either you're dealing with it now or you're going to deal with it later. Yeah. So maybe you might want to deal with it now, potentially. Sometimes I, c- I can imagine don't make a decision until you absolutely have to make that decision can also be an option there as well. Can we just take a small step in the right direction? Are we not sure? Are we unclear about how to go there? Okay, cool. I don't have all the information at this moment. What is the smallest step I can make in a logical direction without, but also without delaying that decision either. I'm not trying to avoid that. I'm trying to gather more information I'm, to make a correct. But that's leadership, isn't it? That's, mm. that's where you're, you're making decisions with the best information you have mm. to continue on, whatever your mission is. Mm. It right. is, it is. So we, you're putting people in those situations. Um, and that's over a table. I mean, that's a tabletop. That's in a, we're sitting in an office and doing it. I was listening to a story today and it was it was a story actually from uh it was about a i think it was a anyway it was a helicopter pilot and i think it was in vietnam and there was whatever they were get they were getting shot at they were flying out of a a hot lz they picked up the troops they're flying out of a hot lz and they whatever the, the they got out of there but the the bird was going down and they the way it was, it was that, what do they call it? Free rotation when the motor stopped. Yes. Auto rotation. Yes. Where the motor stopped, the helicopter's still going, but the, 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 they're still in the air, the things are still flying, and, but, and the, the pilot's trying to bring this helicopter down. And it was said that, okay, they had this helicopter full of troops and that, and they said that particular maneuver had never been pulled before in that particular helicopter. That there was an auto rotation, so the nothing was driving the the, the the rotors, and they had to land in some find some place to land and land as well as they could. Which, spoiler alert, wasn't that great, but they got to the ground somehow. And I started to think, and they were like, "Well, you know, the very experienced pilot." And I got to think, like, how the hell do you train for that? Now, again, I'm not, I don't want to particularly go for helicopters, but that to me, that sounded like such an intense situation. I've got an overloaded helicopter. I've got an auto rotation, a, a major malfunction that I don't even know how the hell you would start to simulate that. So an extremely difficult emergency to simulate without possibly wrecking many millions of Uncle Sam's hardware. And you've got to, and apparently this pilot was trained and he kind of, yeah, we got him to the ground. They were pretty banged up, but he got him to the ground. And I was like, how do you go about training for super unlikely, difficult, when it's just so difficult to put someone in that real situation? How do you even begin training someone like that? Hmm. Well, it doesn't have to be a helicopter scenario. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, don't, yeah. Not to bring, so, not to go that. Just yeah, that was the example was I heard the, today. Yeah. In, the, in that, that case, a uh, auto rotation is actually depending on the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, like you do train for it all the time, and you do it, and you, you always, the backup is you don't commit, in the sense that hey, you don't remove power, you don't remove the the transmission, like you do it under a controlled experience with an experienced pilot. And a, uh, you understand what you're supposed to do in that stressful situation. 
So you have check marks, you have an emergency procedure, you do the emergency procedure from memory, mm-hmm. and then a, um, and then you uh, wash the gauges and uh, do what you were trained. And if you do that, like, even if you don't do it perfectly, 90% is pretty good, you know? Okay. So the same thing. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like, you just need to understand what your outcomes you want to achieve, what is achievable, and how you can test it in a way that doesn't burn down your business. So, okay, yeah. And I would, I would actually argue that, a, um, especially like IT companies, like you can, you can get pretty good at this. And uh, I mean, the infrastructure is all there. Sure, you have to pay for it, but a, uh, you, can, you can build it quite quickly, test it quite quickly, and a, uh, throw it away quite quickly and understand what you can do next time to get better. And uh, there are, yeah, when, it, when you're talking about a non-IT company, then you, of course you have limited resources. You've got to figure out how to do that. But a, uh, most companies that are in hardware have safety training of some sort. Mm-hmm. So they, they do speak to it. A, uh, you might not a, um, get the actual simulation or scenario, but if you don't have a simulator, mm. probably a tabletop where you talk through it and you have shared experiences with experienced people mm. is the best way to go. And so if you're not doing that, there's a good chance that you, your, uh, your organization is brittle because you have a few people who are experienced or have all the knowledge that are capable right. and dependent on those people. So if, like, if those people end up going away for whatever reason, the bus, a, mm-hmm. uh, then a, uh, your, your organization is brittle in a sense and you're just, you're rolling the dice. You're taking, it's high risk. Okay. All right. So there is some ways. Well, that was interesting but to give the helicopter analogy. There are some ways even because I was like, whoa, you're going to screw with 40 million worth of hardware and start free falling with that. So, but- so what they do is they, they put you in a, a much, much cheaper one first okay. and, you, and you practice there. All right. For that's, days. A good, that's a good metaphor. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to I'm trying to get the metaphor back to yeah. the real life here that, OK, there is cheaper helicopters yeah. that we could practice there are cheaper you don't have to test on necessarily your full production or something no, no, in a no. business right like those type of like for example like before you go in deployment we have to do certifications like you got to get up to speed so you're flying you're doing your natops check you're doing your instrument check yeah uh, you're doing your tactics your weapon tactics check so all these things and uh, so you have to know how to do these things and you have to be tested with a pilot and so they not everyone goes to like launching missiles or shooting guns but a, uh, you have to go up into that fire button and you have to know it cold mm. and so if you're not ready to deploy they don't send you and so like you we are being tested constantly and i i would say that that's a like probably a great takeaway from the military is they, they do training well a um uh, civilians I think it's a, they see it as a cost, and so mm. maybe they don't they don't put as much time or effort into it. But a, uh, again, like I, I, my big thing is I think about culture, and a, uh, so I, I, with Pipe Drive, for example, we uh, we have a, a training culture. Now it's not as robust as I would like it to be, but it's more robust than most I've seen. Mm. So a, um, yeah, I, I think training is a very healthy way to kind of influence culture they uh, also they, uh, make sure the experiences get passed on from generation to generation you can get your uh, inexperienced people up to speed so they know what the seniors are doing and why they're doing it they probably they can work with them every day and not have the conversation mm-hmm. but if you put them in a, a training situation 
and something can go sideways and they experience it together, now we can actually talk. So there's a lot of value there. What does a training culture mean beyond? Because most companies that I would I would hazard that most companies, when they talk about training, it's like, well, here's a training course, go on a training course, or we get a trainer in, or get someone speaks for a little while, and you get some check marks, and you've done a couple of training courses, you maybe read a manual. What does it mean to introduce a training culture? Oh, that's heavy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's we're opening a can of worms here. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that, Depends on the company, number one. Okay. But uh, uh, what I've seen at Pipedrive is we actually have, um, everyone's involved in kind of lifelong learning. Everyone's like reading a lot. Everyone is uh, doing extra courses. They're trying to learn some new piece of knowledge that's going to help them with their job. So that's already there. But uh, we don't have the tools or the mechanisms to kind of understand what or know what people know, simply. And usually that's done by testing, which is painful and often considered a waste of time. So mm. yeah, figuring out this problem is something I'm, I'm working on, but I don't have it nailed yet. So That's okay. Because it also, it there's the problem of identifying what is training culture, what are the elements that go into that, what are the practices, what are the direct things. And then I would imagine it's also, well, how do you then change an existing organization to do that? There's kind of two steps in that, yeah. that... I mean, you're fairly high up there, which definitely helps. You're going to need that leadership level. You're going to need leaders to be interested in that. You're going to need to know that people are going to want to know that their CEO is also reading books, is also finding the next skill that they need to know. So they're like, oh, I need to do that as well. But, you know, it's it's tough. And uh, I mean, training, like making good training, Mm. that's tough. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I've I've made all kinds of bad training, so I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, like getting good training is tough, and then yeah, because it's content, and the, at the end of the day, you don't want to have the same content twice. Mm. Like uh, very often, you don't even want to have content about the same subject more than two or three times. So there's a challenge there. Going back to knowing what people know, and uh, like if if you don't know, like it, you're probably giving them the wrong training, and you don't know. You don't know how to engage them, and if uh, even if it's a uh, great training, like it, who's a great training for? Probably not the entire organization, right? So yeah, that's that's a challenge. so individualistic. Yeah, that's it so is. down to the person. What are they? I mean, we're talking about great content, and I mean, for in comedy, that's very obvious to us. People don't want to hear the same joke twice. That's clearly yeah. we got to keep turning over. You can hear a song many times, right? <laughs> Songs get yeah, yeah, but because it's a surprise. <laughs> Because with the joke, the punchline is surprise to you that what a, a, a good, the essence of a joke is that uh, I have a scenario that I paint a picture in your mind. I have a setup okay. that creates a mental image in your mind. And there is a punchline that drastically changes that mental image. So is your metric for how good the joke was, was the response time for people? <laughs> uh, could be. Because uh, then maybe it let, hits them a bit later. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it takes a while to sink in and that's a longer, deeper laugh. Uh, because if you're just going off how quick they get it, because the other style of humor is recognition humor, which is 95% of the humor that's on the internet today. Every meme that you've ever seen is recognition humor, which is, uh, it's funny because it's true. 
I know that scenario. So that's why I find that. And that's nowhere near as satisfying for the human brain than the first kind that I told you of surprise. Surprise is when the brain gets tricked, that's when we we love it more. So it's hard to, if people can see it coming, or they, or it could be strong. They think they see it coming, and then something else comes. So it's it's always good surprise, good mental imagery, is is the core of that. And even when people say, "Oh well, I'm a storyteller," well, I'm a yes, okay, sure, you may be able to paint an excellent excellent picture in their head, but a great story really is just a collection of smaller jokes in the middle of it. And you've used, you've created a very elaborate canvas, which we need to change bits and pieces from expectations or take them in a new direction that they didn't expect and that's where the humor comes from so yeah is there a uh, is there like an equation for figuring out <laughs> is, there, is it been figured out yet is there it's definitely not on the internet that's for sure <laughs> that's for sure every I don't know we look every time like every meme and oh and I do it as well isn't there browsing every meme why am I doing this I know that I, my brain will not receive the satisfaction of if you sit down and watch a stand up special, yes, you will get some good quality stuff in there, but instead it's easy to anyway. Yeah. I hate the internet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was that? This was good. I like this thing about training and the individuality and how hard it is. I used to be, well, we talked about that I was in uh, IT before and I was a software trainer. And I think my first boss, uh, Rob, quickly worked out that I was better at talking than I was at programming and sitting down all day and doing that. And I could do it, but I was a bit of a brat. I was a bit of an arrogant piece of shit back then. I don't think I had humility when I was 22 graduating from university. I thought that I was like, where's my money? I'm a software engineer now. I should be getting 100 grand about next week. Uh, and I wasn't very, I didn't have that. I didn't have a, a humble philosophy. I didn't have a growth mindset. I wasn't learning. I was like, I've learned, I'm learning. Where's my money now? And he sent me out training courses. So uh, he was like, well, okay, you arrogant little shit. Time to, and I had to go uh, teach when I really hadn't even learnt it yet. And he's oh, like, that's a, yeah, that's you're going to, you're going to dance boy. And I had to dance and, and I had to teach Java at first. I was teaching Java sun certified Java training when I just, I mean, I'd learned Java at university. I'd done some, been a tutor for some subjects. So I could kind of do that. And, uh, and then there was this other enterprise integration software that I just had to learn and then go teach. And I remember Oh, I was shit scared. Yeah. I mean, I was scared. I'd had to sit there and do the exercises. Some days you're one day ahead of the students as well, trying to do, you're sitting in a hotel room and you're some, I don't know, you're in Bratislava or something because that's where the boss sent you. You got to give a training course to some company. And I'm in my hotel room in the evening drinking a four pack of beer, trying to do the next exercise because I'm going to need to teach it the next day which was look years later when I actually realized I knew how to do this stuff. Life was so much better for me. Just but, a stress. Yeah, but I was, you know, I was young. I was 23, 24, arrogant and all right. Okay, I had to Everybody goes through it. Go through that. So yeah, I understood how stiff those training courses were 
and how, uh, and even with culture played a factor. I did, uh, I got sent to um, Saudi Arabia to give a couple training courses. They were like, I remember in Sydney, they were like, who wants to, yeah, we got a course that's in the Middle East. And I remember it was basically that situation where there's a lineup of guys and everyone takes a step back. And then it's about <laughs> me, me go, and it's me going, yeah, I'll go. Oh, go! Sounds fucking all right. And uh, what actually happened with that was that I mean, again, I know nothing about the world, and got to go Saudi Arabia. Jeez, mate, that sounds fucking interesting. Exciting! I'll go there. I got to And uh, they so there's formalities. One can't just walk into Saudi Arabia. One needs to get visas and so forth. And I got this letter from the Saudi embassy, and and it said all this Arabic writing, and it had my name and my details, and all this Arabic writing. Went beauty, got my visa, I'm good to go. Get on the plane, spend a couple of days in Dubai in a nice hotel, see what's going on. I go to get on my flight to uh, Riyadh, and they're like, "Sorry, sir, we can't let you on this flight." I'm like, "What? What? What? What, what could possibly be the problem?" I'm like, here's my letter. He's like, sir, this letter says go to the embassy and get your visa. (laughs) So there are calls made. I'm calling Sydney. I'm calling Riyadh. I have angry people on either side. They're going, what the fuck are we going to do with you? Uh, Um... I so I'm holed up in Dubai for a few more days. I check myself into a cheap hotel as like the least I could do for my boss to not, you know, this have him this whatever hundreds of day, euros a day in some nice fancy hotel. So I check myself into some small place. I camp out there for a couple of days. I get told, okay, here's the plan. You're going to go to Bahrain. Uh, you will go, you get, you get. A day in Bahrain, you'll get a hotel room. You will meet a man in the lobby of the hotel. Give him your passport at seven in the morning. He will come back at 8 p.m. in the evening with a visa. Now, this does not sound like a good plan, but I am in no situation to argue with any. I'm like, give it to the guy in the hotel. What? Uh, I lived in Bahrain for a while. Okay, but they got to do it, right? I So I did it. I met the guy at 7 a.m. in the morning, the gentleman. I was there one day after the Grand Prix. Not, again, not like I complained for these things. One what day year? late. 2005, maybe? I yep, think. I was there. Huh. Okay, I could have just called you up. I should have, yeah. Yep. I mean, like, Jesse, you don't know who I am. I'm this idiot. <laughs> I'm stuck. So yeah, they got me into they got me into Saudi Arabia. I got the visa, and then I was able. Uh, we were a bit delayed, but uh, what I learned anyway was I going with this story. Yes, training culture is that I was giving courses to it was for Saudi Aramco, uh, giving training courses to them, and I understood there was the worker guys, and then there were the leaders, the bosses in the room, and it was very important for the workers in the room to be seen to be doing it well for their bosses. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe if I'm teaching some Europeans, I can be more like, no, you didn't do that right here. This isn't right. I'm going to, sure, I'm going to sit down and work with you, but I could be more direct like, no, this isn't correct. I understood really quickly, like I couldn't say that. These guys didn't know what they were doing. They didn't really know what was up, but I couldn't, they were the dumbest students I had if you wanted to put them on a scale but there's no way I could tell them with their boss there because that's going to be very bad. And my only uh, criteria that I'm being judged on is the Friday survey that they take when they evaluate the trainer. And so I can't, yeah, I can't annoy these guys. So I've got to work with the, 
the boss is in the room and they know even less, but okay, I'm certainly not going to tell them they're wrong. And then I can't make the employees in the room see bad to the bosses. And yeah, I had to dance in this cultural environment. How was it for you working in in Bahrain and okay, in the Middle East that way? How culturally? I, I, I actually, I mean, of course, there's culture shock, but I have to say that uh, I really enjoyed a uh, Bahrain. I, hmm. I was, it was, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I got there and uh, I lived there for. I think about two years hmm. and um yeah yeah i enjoyed it do you were living on base there uh no i lived uh on the economy so what does that mean economy economy so like it, there if there's a base like if you live off a of base like you're you're paying you're helping the local economy so we call that the economy oh okay nice okay so, so I, you get I, had off base. I had an apartment okay. uh, yeah out in town oh nice okay huh and so uh interesting and uh, but you're working on base. Are you still mainly working with uh, <coughs> Americans or American military, or you're working with with local people? Both, but um, like mostly, I was flying at that point, so it was just the uh, yeah, going to Kuwait a lot, Dubai, yeah, hmm. Middle East. Sure, sure, that stuff there. The 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 last story for me was that when I was in Riyadh, um, the final day. Oh yeah, so I, I was not good at being away from home, which is why all these questions that I had for you earlier about like, how did you do with that? How could you possibly not do what you want to do? Because I can't understand, which is fine. But so two weeks away from home and I'm like, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so lonely, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, and I'd been using dial-up internet to call home. I've been buying a prepaid card using dial-up internet. Not Because in Australia, when you dial up, the phone call is like fixed fee, 30 cents or something, right? But that was a timed call. So I'd been using hours and hours of internet where the actual phone call part was a timed uh, you know, cost. So I go to check out from the hotel and they're like, yes, sir. Thank you very much. And you're phone bill of $2,000. And I'm like, what the what, what fuck now? And because I'd never bothered to ask the question about timed local calls. I went, oh, that's very, that's very interesting. Huh. Now, what had also happened was I had uh, the, the, whatever the manager at Saudi Aramco had called me up and he's, he just wanted to meet me on the last day. I hadn't met him. He wasn't in the course, but he just wanted to meet and talk to me. And I got into his office and hello, you know, just nice to meet this gentleman. And, and I understood very quickly that he was like, wait, there's this crazy Australian fuck who's willing to come here and teach for us. Maybe we can poach him and, you know, pay him money. And I have, by this stage, I have no intention of working here in Saudi Arabia. I'm very convinced that I don't want to be here, but I'm like, I got a $2,000 phone bill that I need to pay. So I was like, well, your organization is very interesting and respectful. And I was talking, but I got a problem. And he's like, what's the problem? And I'm like, I got this phone bill. Do you think this could be sorted? <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> so uh, we got it worked out. I think, the, I think the Saudis ended up paying for it rather than my boss. Thankful, Jesus. So yeah, I was a dumb little shit, and thankfully I got out of my feet. Yeah, just in a situation, a new situation. You don't know the you don't know the playing field happens. Yeah, cultural issues. Yeah, cultural issues. Oh God, we can talk for an hour and a half. I'm sorry, I could talk and talk. So I for, look the time gets cool. away from me. So I could talk. Well, it was and a pleasure. Talk. It was very nice to talk to you, Jesse. Thank you for coming in, sir. 
I uh, appreciate your lessons and just applying the lessons that you've learned from just looking after people and leadership and applying that to business, I think was the important takeaway here that you brought it back to what you're actually doing with real companies here in Estonia right now. Um, thank you. I, uh, I, once again, I, I stayed in the military so long because like, my thing or my interest is leadership from a very young age. Mm. And uh, they provide all the opportunities, like every day, even when I, from the time I went in at 17 to years later. Mm. There was always the uh, opportunities for leadership. And the, uh, so I, I capitalized on them, took them with me, and uh, I think now at the point I, I find like leadership's important when you can find someone who's willing to listen or engage it, um, but mentorship also. And the, uh, yeah. That's probably the next day I think you should think about. Mentorship and leadership. Well, you're, I mean, you yeah. talked about before you're the, the leader for your, for your crew. Mm. The same time they have the young careers, you, you mentioned it, you're mentoring them too. So it's uh, maybe not even leadership. If you mentor, you'll get them where you need them to be. It's there, yeah. And it's, it's something that I think about. I can definitely see. When I, when I say, like, I, I make broad, grand statements, like, leadership has helped me be better and outcome. Oh, look at me. I'm so wise. What does it basically mean? I stopped looking at my own shit and started helping my employees. That's, like, the unfancy tone for it. it. I started to take an interest in what they're... Not an interest, but be like, how can I help you? How can I help you today? How can I help you today? Oh, you got a problem? Cool. I'm going to fix it for you. Here's, you know. Careful with that. Okay. Okay. Not fix it, you know, but you got a big overriding issue, a roadblock. I'm going to help you get through it. I'm going to help you do that so you can get on with your job and do that. And when I stopped being so self-centered, uh, I guess, and just sort of sitting inward and going, I'm going to do my task, but instead I'm going to help you today. How can I, what, have, you know, what, what difficulties do you face? How can I coach you through them? All of a sudden, yeah, there's the magic in that. Lo and behold, things get better when you start having that attitude. So absolutely. Indeed. Jesse, thank you very much for coming in today. My pleasure. Nice.